Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. My name is Alexandra Ministern, and I'm a professor of American culture, history, and women's and gender studies at the University of Michigan. My research has covered uh, the history of eugenics in the United States and indeed globally. I've always been interested in uh, the history of medicine and the history of health. I've also been interested in looking at ideologies of nationalism, particularly when those are more conservative or more restrictive. And my most recent book, focuses on the rise of the alt-right and white nationalism in the United States over the past several decades with um, a great deal of attention to the period from 2015 to the present. And I, as part of that, I continue to track these groups um, to study how they're morphing and changing and really try to understand their ideologies and how threatening they are. I would say in terms of our recent history, the circumstances around the 2020 election are really unique. Tensions are incredibly high. Threats of voter intimidation exist. Threats of voter suppression exist. And indeed, we've already seen instances of both across the country. And I think what is the scariest to most people is the prospect of actual civil unrest or violence on election day or soon after, depending on the outcome of the election. And that violence would be perpetrated most likely by some of these far right groups that people have come to know more about as they've been covered in the news. And they've certainly been covered a lot in the news in Michigan because of the plot uncovered to kidnap the governor and even the arrest um, of the member of an organization called The Base, which is a neo-Nazi organization uh, that seeks to incite a civil war and wants to create a white ethno state in the upper Midwest or the Pacific Northwest. You know, the past 10 years and really in the past few years, we've seen an escalation of the far right both in the United States and around the globe. Um, with the appearance of new groups such as the Proud Boys or the Base, which was just created in 2018. And there's a range of others. Some have longer trajectories, some were formed in the past year or two. So that's the general panorama that we're looking at. 2020, though, has really been a tinderbox for the far right for a few reasons. The first is our current situation with the pandemic. As we saw in, in Lansing, when far right groups descended on the Capitol, there's a lot of pushback among those groups against the public health restrictions that were put in place by the governor. Now, yes, there's a range of people who are protesting those restrictions. Not everyone is, the mem is a member of a militia group, that is for sure. However, if you look at the images from those events, uh, the white men who came armed, often in fatigues, who stormed into the Capitol, who yelled and really intimidated and expressed a sense of violence and threat, that's one aspect. So the, the, the context of COVID 
and the pushback, not just in Michigan, but in other states against COVID public health restrictions, which are viewed as an infringement on personal rights, on liberty, and so on, um, is one factor. Another factor is over the summer, we saw a wave of anti-racism protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. And that brought many people out into the streets and that brought these far right groups out into the streets who were often countering the protesters and claiming that they had appeared to instill order or to protect the situation. And so really you've seen an upsurge of these groups, both really since spring 2020 in the context of COVID and the context of the anti-racism protests. So I'm a historian who is focused primarily on the 20th century, which means I've gone into archives and I've looked at boxes of materials that often no one else cared to look at. And I've seek to reconstruct the past using those materials in conjunction with other kinds of primary sources and secondary sources to make an argument, to write a narrative, to show change over time, to uh, shed light on some aspect of history that um, we knew less about before, which is generally what historians do. When you're looking at the 21st century, it becomes more challenging, particularly when studying a phenomenon like the far right. So first of all, for the book I wrote recently, which is called Proud Boys in the White Ethnostate, every, almost every material that I looked at for that book, either a primary source or a secondary source, it was all born digital. So it either uh, was material were materials that appeared on webzines or appeared as PDFs or existed in the vast realm of social media. So in order to create an archive for that book, I gathered those materials, which consist of thousands of screenshots that I captured from Twitter, from Gab, from Facebook, to show the images and the ideologies of the far right in the period from about 2015 to 2018 when I was writing the book. That's a bit different from a historian who is usually using materials that are more distanced in the past. It's very challenging to write a history of the presence in that sense because you are, it's, very, it's unfolding in front of your eyes. Um, so how do you capture those trajectories? How do you understand them and how do you contextualize them? One of the um, skills that historians can bring to the contemporary moment to understand what is going on is really being able to thoroughly and thoughtfully contextualize. So in this case, it would be how do we contextualize the rise of the far right or in particular a group such as whether it is the Proud Boys or in Michigan, the Wolverine Watchmen, as they call themselves, uh, which was one of the groups that uh, planned to carry out plots against law enforcement and were connected to the group that wanted to kidnap the governor. Um, in addition, you know, being a historian of 20th century, of 20th century movements and particularly those that lean more to the right, I have a fairly deep understanding of fascism and conservatism, and I can trace those ideologies from the past into the present. Many of those ideologies of fascism, such as traditionalism, patriarchy, racism, xenophobia, nostalgia, a desire for racial rebirth, some of those constants in 
fascist thinking, we can see very much in full force in 2020 among these far right groups. Of course, they have morphed and been repackaged in a variety of different ways. And once they show up in social media as memes, they can also take on a life of their own. I think, you know, these groups have been around, um, you know, if let's take this back into the post-World War II period. Um, these groups have been around since then, and they've ebbed and flowed um, and had more and less prominence in different parts of the world at different times in different political contexts. There's a really interesting scholar of the far right named Cass Mudd who has written, uh, published a book just last year and basically schematizes the far right in terms of four waves. And uh, one of the things that they argue is that the, we are now experiencing the fourth wave of the far right. Um, the other waves all happened in the 20th century after World War II, gained some traction in some ways, but nothing like the traction we're seeing and the kind of explosion of these groups that we've seen over the past 10 years. And one of the features of this fourth wave of the far right that we've seen is the extent to which it has been normalized and mainstreamed into not only American society, but if we look at what's happening in Germany, um, in India, in Sweden, in France, where the in Europe, you see it in the form of the identitarian movement. This normalization and mainstreaming is essential to understanding why we're hearing so much about the far right these days. And yes, I would say there's more of it. Um, in the US, it often is very much anchored around white identity politics and uh, fears among uh, whites that their status in society will be lost with demographic change. And there is, so there's demographic anxiety uh, there's a sense of victimization and persecution among these white nationalist groups. And they do overlap with some of the militia groups like the ones we've seen in Michigan, which share some of those ideas. They tend to operate more on the pro-Second Amendment, anti-government, anti-law enforcement side of things. The way I like to think about um, this proliferation of far-right groups is as really a landscape of overlapping Venn diagrams. Sometimes they connect, sometimes they don't connect, but what glues them together are shared ideologies that are fundamentally anti-democratic. Social media has definitely played a role in the transnationalization of this movement. So for example, if you think of someone like the Christchurch shooter, he killed 50 people at a mosque in, in New Zealand. Um, he claimed that trips to Europe were what radicalized him because he saw changes and identified with the identitarian movement. Later, it was determined that the leader of the identitarian movement in Austria, Martin Sellner, had actually donated money to him. And so you have all these linkages between New Zealand, different countries in Europe, and so on and so forth. So that's just an example of how cash is flowing ideas are flowing, and these narratives of radicalization are really flowing from one place to the next, all undergirded by this sense of victimization, fears of white genocide among 
white Americans or white Europeans or white New Zealanders um, in a way that is resonant with white supremacy. A recent study was released by one of the watchdog um, organizations that looks at the potential for far-right extremism on election day or an election week. And there are five states that are identified as those that are most, um, most susceptible. And Michigan is definitely at the top of the list. There are a large number of far-right groups, white militia groups in Michigan. There are, there have been for decades and they are very activated now in the context of COVID and the anti-racism protest. At the same time, because of everything that's happened, I would say that the attorney general's office and others who monitor these types of situations in the state are watching things incredibly closely and have put in set a series of very um, well laid out precautions for November 3rd. So that is reassuring. And I would want people to feel reassured about that. For, and one of the things that I have been saying is that, you know, there might be attempts at voter intimidation, but no one should feel intimidated to vote. They should exercise their right to vote and go on on November 3rd. The main point that I wanted to say is no matter who wins the election, these groups aren't going away. Um, they will either feel emboldened or upset by the outcome and that will spur them into continued action of some sort. Overall, these groups are having a very negative impact on the democratic process. Not only are, are the ideologies of these groups almost always anti-democratic, often with a lowercase d, as well as with an uppercase d, that's contained in their ideologies. And in addition, they're participating in kind of a generalized attempt to destabilize legitimate democratic processes like voting, like the legitimacy of the election itself, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's incredibly disruptive and it's, it's, this disruption is resonating in a year that has been unlike any other year we've experienced in a long time with both the pandemic and then the reckoning with white supremacy and the racial justice protests that we saw um, in the summer. I really think it's important for people to keep in mind that it's their right to vote. They should get to their polling places early if they can. Um, if they have to wait in line, they'll wait in line. They should not let themselves be distracted by all the noise that might be um, that might be out there in terms of poll watchers or poll challengers. They should know that the state, the, gov the governor's office has set up a hotline if they see anything that looks untoward or potentially threatening and they can call it. So, you know, one of the th things I'd like to underscore is that I think it's really good to be aware of this potential threat of far right groups but we can't let fear of that drive us away from the polls. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.